Hey, it's Justin. Before we jump into this episode, I have one very important, very exciting thing to tell you about. Hayes Fire Studios is bringing Holy Ghost Stories to several cities this spring in something we're calling Holy Ghost Stories Live, the Exodus Tour. If you're a regular Holy Ghost Stories listener, you've heard about these live shows before. This is your chance to be there, to join me in person for a magical evening where we immerse ourselves in the epic story of the Exodus and meet Yahweh inside it. I will be joined by none other than Kendall Ramsour, the fabulous composer and cellist responsible for the entirety of the musical score you heard in the Exodus series here on the podcast. Kendall is a Boston Music Award winner, a finalist on America's Got Talent. He's performed at the the Grammys. Trust me, you will love hearing him play and experiencing the live accompaniment he will provide on cello as I tell you this unforgettable story. Not only that, we will be joined by gifted vocalist Eve Adeline, who will help give voice to our wonder and praise as we gaze upon Yahweh together. I'm telling you, this will be a very special time. All of the cities and dates are on the website, holyghoststories.org, and the tickets are live right now. If you'd like to join us, be sure to grab your seats ASAP. These shows consistently sell out. I've heard from many of you, for instance, who were not able to get tickets to the Christmas show before they were gone, and you were bummed about that. So don't procrastinate. If you're listening to this on or after February 9th, now is the time to reserve your spot. I don't want you to miss out. Holyghoststories.org. Oh, and we're doing a pre-show bonus. It's a meet and greet and Q&A with Kendall and myself before the show that you can add to your ticket at purchase. We want it to be intimate, so there's a limited number of these spots per show, but we'd love to be able to meet you guys and chat about the Exodus or my research trip to Egypt or the process of collaborating or anything else you fancy. Also, seating is general admission, but anyone who grabs the pre-show bonus gets a guaranteed front of house seat. So come hang out and get a great spot for the show. We cannot wait to see you in April. I promise you this will be an unforgettable night of story and song. I hope you'll be able to join us. HolyGhostStories.org Hi, everybody. Before we jump into the season four finale, I want to let you know that if you've enjoyed this season's telling of the Exodus story, I have something you're going to love. It's called Bonfire, a guide to encountering God in the Exodus. And it is a 10-week study written by myself and Holy Ghost Stories manuscript editor J.L. Gerhardt, who happens to be my extraordinarily gifted wife. We've created this as a resource that will take you back through season four and guide you through some focused time gazing at our sea-splitting, manna-bringing God. It is the perfect follow-up to your first listen through this season, and it's available today. I've got more info for you after this episode, so stick around after the last scene. All right, how about a story? A bridge is a powerful thing, a mediator spanning the gulf between separate shores, a straddler of two worlds, a reconciler of estranged lands. Whether a highway or a footpath, such a link is evidence of a desire for connection. A bridge is an agenda made manifest. This is a story about a God with an agenda, a God whose ambition will not be quelled, a God who, dissatisfied with a gulf, builds a bridge. Three, in fact, a man, his brother, 
and a tent. Each will straddle worlds, and all will point prophetically ahead to the coming of one bridge whose power will eclipse all else. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Moonlight cloaks the Israelite camp. Fires smolder. Smoke rises. The bleeding of sheep echoes off the rocks as ewes call their newly born lambs close. Hundreds of thousands of men and women and children sleep. And if Moses does not, If he sits alone outside his tent, gazing into the glowing embers of a fading fire, perhaps it's because he's remembering, his mind wandering back to his time on the mountain, basking there in the presence of God. But then Yahweh's revelation, the misery and anger in his voice as he told Moses about what was happening in that very instant on the ground the golden calf, the adultery, the defiance. Fear floods Moses' heart as the moment plays out again in his mind, as if it's happening right now. I have seen these people, Yahweh says as the cloud roils, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. No! Then I will make you into a great nation. What? Would he do that? Is this a test? Even if it is a test, this must be something Yahweh would do, otherwise he would be a liar. To think I could be done with these people. These people with all of their stubbornness and their faithlessness and their problems. These people who followed me like sheep out of Egypt and... And then... Visions of the people's grumbling give way, perhaps, to other memories in Moses' heart. His favorite verse of the song they wrote together after crossing the sea, authored by a teenage boy as he broke his prized Isis figurine into pieces. So many women and men standing in line for counsel, their faces clouded with conflict or confusion, and then thanking him with glad eyes as they walked away with his blessing. The happy tears of that woman at Alim, he happened to be watching the moment she caught a glimpse of the twelve springs. The children pouncing on the quail that day, squealing with delight. Aaron and Hur holding up his trembling arms. The men below cheering as the Amalekites fled, shouting Yahweh's name. Yahweh! Moses blurts, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Moses is kneeling now, 
crying into the electric cloud, impassioned by an intense force he cannot name. Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. The swirling cloud calms very well. Moses wakes from his trance. He shakes his head. What a thing to lead Yahweh on a journey toward mercy. Or was it Yahweh who led Moses? He's in the tent of meeting. Morning sun shines on a sea of faces, clamoring for a better view, peering from within the camp toward the structure standing far outside the gates, the place it was moved after the calf. Moses' form disappears inside, and the cloud pillar swirls into view at the entrance. What do you think they talk about in there? Hopefully not us. But it is about them. You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Droplets of mist settle like dew on Moses' eyelashes. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. But this favor must extend beyond him. Moses wants them to be close to him as well. And remember that this nation is your people. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Is he agreeing to go personally with us? Is that a yes? Maybe? Yahweh, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and, and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Yahweh listens. Moses is clearly aware of the effects the cloud and the fire have on those who would molest Israel. Moses knows the influence these meetings have on the people who've chosen to follow him. These are practical concerns, and Yahweh does not fault him for considering them. But the maker of hearts, the creator of souls, can see beyond these questions. And looking further in, Yahweh sees a beautiful thirst. I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I do know you by name. You will? Thank you would be the appropriate follow-up at this point, but Moses is a man who's tasted the wonder, the presence of deity, and he cannot help himself from asking for 
more. Show me your glory, please. Stars float like embers above the mountain of God. The wash of the Milky Way whispers of worlds unseen. Sinai stands black and unflinching against the sky, atop the desert, beside the Israelite camp. Along the silhouetted rock, a shape moves upward. Moses' hand, lined like the map of a thousand rivers, grasps the edges of the two stone tablets held in his arm. You chisel them and bring them up, and I will write on the words of the covenant, Yahweh said, and I will show you my glory. No one else accompanies Moses on this ascent. No flocks or herds graze anywhere near the mountain, these were the instructions. Oh, and Moses will not be able to see Yahweh's face. That was made clear. Only his back. Does God have a back? Sunlight goldens the sky, transforming the jagged, stacked lines of mountains surrounding Sinai into dusty grays and purples. As Moses approaches the summit, cold rock warms and the magnificent wildness of the landscape eases into view. This desert, one enormous altar of unhewn stone. At the top, the prophet rests against a wall of mountain, lungs pumping. A white mist gathers. Low-slung sun rays ricochet off the droplets, wrapping Moses in haze fire. His heart throbs. He spins around, perhaps, so as not to miss anything. But somehow he's drawn to a hollow place in the stone. Hiding the old man's life in the cleft of the rock, Yahweh covers Moses there with his hand. Next, something like this. The air warms, boils, a blinding radiance. Goosebumps flood Moses' bronzed skin. The linen of his robe ripples like troubled water. Then Yahweh passes in front of Moses and removes his hand to reveal a glimpse as he moves away. The old man's eyes flash with light. A tear falls down his cheek. And the voice, the one Moses has heard so many times, the voice that thunders like crashing water, that voice speaks, but it sounds different, like it was muffled before and now it's unshackled. Yahweh, I am Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Moses' soul rises as if newly endowed with wings. He wants to laugh and cry and shout and be silent. The voice continues. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, 
reckoning the crime of fathers with sons and sons of sons to the third generation and the fourth. Moses drops to his knees and lowers his face to the ground, worshiping. The old shepherd has no interest in a life without him. Lord, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. I know this is a stiff-necked people. Forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. A smile, a glowing, pulsing joy. I am making my covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in the world. And then Yahweh shares the covenant terms with Moses. Forty days Moses spends on Sinai. No food, no water. And yet, somehow, he comes down from the mountain filled to overflowing. Aaron scans the horizon as he has every day for the past few weeks. No sign of Mo... Wait, what is... He squints. Is that the bush Moses saw? It's a flame again. Yahweh's incandescent presence has moved into the... No, the bush is moving. No, the bush is... Moses? Moses strides toward his brother with a broad smile, holding the new tablets of the covenant law. Brimming with peace and joy, he feels renewed after the time with Yahweh, quickened, electrified. What Moses does not realize is that his face has been changed. Aaron recoils, stumbling backward with his hands up to guard against the radiation shooting from his brother's skin. Stay back! At the sound of Aaron's panicked voice, men and women look up and then jolt to their feet, terrified at the sight of this man on fire. No, do not be afraid. Come to me. Cautiously, they do. Moses tells them what he saw. And then he tells them to gather all of Israel. Stock still, the Hebrews stand breathless and watch as a shining Moses reiterates the terms of the covenant given to him on Sinai. Little children, ooh and ah, pointing at the miracle as its reflection dances in their eyes. The adults, though, squint and flinch. Moses looks for a change a shift in the faces of the people, fear eclipsed by wonder and worship. But there is no such metamorphosis. They cannot bear the light. And so, when he is finished speaking, Moses veils his face. His glory, Yahweh's glory, remains curtained from then on. Only when Moses enters the tent of meeting does he uncover himself, speaking to Yahweh with an unveiled face and finding himself infused with more light. 
He'll force the people to endure the radiance while he relays whatever Yahweh said. But then Moses will permit the Hebrews the mitigated encounter they desire and replace the veil. Yahweh, though, has other things in mind. This is what Yahweh has commanded. The Israelites are assembled again. Moses' words are passed back through the gathered mass. From what you have, take an offering for Yahweh. Everyone who is willing is to bring to Yahweh an offering of gold, silver, and bronze, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ramskins dyed red, and durable leather, acacia wood, olive oil, spices, and onyx stones, and other gems. Murmured excitement pulses through the camp. It's time. Time to begin the project Yahweh told Moses about on the mountain. Time to build the tabernacle. The entire community withdraws from Moses, but this time only to return with offerings to Yahweh. So many offerings. Women and men alike raid their tents, grabbing gold brooches and rings, filigreed headdresses, silver bracelets, gilded serving pitchers, hooped earrings and nose rings, broad-collar necklaces of hammered bronze, golden diadems inset with onyx and purple amethyst, shining amulets and goblets, and gemstones, red and green jasper, feldspar, turquoise, and lapis lazuli, all tumble from folded fabric into the growing pile. Nowhere was the Egyptians' enthusiasm in dismissing the Hebrews more manifest than in the abundance of riches with which they sent the former slaves away, whatever it took to get them to leave. And from this abundance, the children of Yahweh now happily give. But Yahweh has called for some things not immediately on hand, and so the Israelites set to work. They slaughter rams, tanning their hides and dyeing them red. Men canvas a miles-wide radius, harvesting acacia wood from the hardy, thorn-studded desert trees. Women crush red sandstone and steep the leaves of Isatis tinctoria, coaxing deep blue and scarlet pigments from a deceptively monochromatic landscape. Mothers employ their children, perhaps, in the task of capturing dragonflies and nets, drying the insects and grinding cobalt from their abdomens. Grandmothers laugh and tell stories as they spin yarn from the dyed mohair and wool. Husbands and wives team up to build looms where bolts of linen begin to take shape. Olive oil and spices join the offerings too. There will be lamps to light and incense to create. Free will offerings, all brought day after day to a smiling Moses who directs Joshua and others to inventory the collection. In no time, they have enough materials to begin creating. But Yahweh's blueprints are intricate. Complex embroidery, delicate metalwork, advanced finish carpentry, and all of it requiring an overarching artistic vision that's nothing short of transcendent. 
These plans are, after all, an echo of the heavenly dwelling place Moses saw on the mountain. This is going to require a level of skill and artistry that, well, these former slaves do not possess. But Yahweh has gifts to give. Bezalel blinks. Me? His grandfather, Hur, smiles. Yes, Yahweh has chosen you. How exactly the transformation happens will be lost to history, but one day an Israelite named Bezalel wakes up full of the Spirit of God. He's brimming with wisdom. He sees the world, the human experience, the intricacies of an enchanted universe with sudden clarity. Two, he knows things he did not know before. When Moses calls for an audience with him at the staging area, the piled metal and wood sets Bezalel's mind aflame. Visions of what the materials could be, the beauty waiting to be extracted from them, he cannot explain it, he just must create. And when Bezalel puts his hands to the task, wondrous things emerge. But it's not just him. Yahweh gives another man named Oholeb similar gifts, and he enables the two of them to teach others their skills, stonemasonry and woodwork, engraving, designing, weaving, embroidering. The wise-hearted Bezalel and Oholeb have soon trained a small army of women and men in these arts, the exact skills necessary to create Yahweh's tabernacle. The offerings continue to pour in, morning after morning, from the Hebrews. The inventory continues, the stacks and piles grow larger, and eventually the overrun workers leave their tasks and run to Moses. The people are bringing too much, more than enough for doing the work Yahweh commanded to be done. That, that's all! Moses laughs as he issues an order to be sent throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. Yahweh smiles, having to restrain the people from giving. This is good. As the weeks and months progress, the once listless Israelites wake each morning with new fervor. They set about their tasks with joy taking holy pleasure in the kingdom magic of good work. Metal is shaped, yarn is woven, timber is joined. And finally, it's time for Moses to inspect the fruit of their labor. A detailed account of the tabernacle inspection, perhaps. Moses runs his furrowed fingers over the curves of the lampstand, each of its seven lustrous branches adorned with sculpted almond blossoms. Extraordinary. They look like I could lean in and smell them. A proud weaver hands Moses a mohair curtain. This, this used to be a goat, no? The weaver nods, smiling. And now it will cover the sanctuary of Yahweh. The old man bends low, 
lifting the end of an acacia beam covered with gold. He closes one eye and with the other gazes down the length of the plated wood. Straight as a spear. He rests his palm on a carpenter's shoulder. This is fine work. Moses peers out from behind the fabric, shielding the workers from his glowing face. Ah, is this the the veil? Yes. A tear gathers in the corner of his eye, perhaps, as he just now sees the parallel. For the most holy place. Moses turns the fabric over in his hands, fine linen with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn woven amongst the warp and weft, tracing the shape of cherubim. We will need this. Yahweh nods his head. Yes, but not forever. More inspections. Moses examines the table and its articles, the golden altar, the incense, the myriad curtains and panels, the bronze altar and its utensils, the basin and its stand, the ropes and tent pegs. He breaks into a happy laugh as the craftswomen and craftsmen show him the priestly garments, the ephod, with its golden strands woven amongst the blue, purple, and scarlet fabric, the breastpiece with its twelve gleaming gemstones set in four straight rows, the onyx medallions on the shoulder pieces set in gold filigree and engraved with the names of Israel's sons. Moses looks toward Joseph's bones and smiles. Finally, the turban, finely twisted linen with a base made of gold, The old shepherd reads the inscription, Holy to Yahweh. Moses looks at his brother standing by and points to the words, This is you, you know. Aaron nods. Never forget that. Finally, Bezalel points Moses to a glittering object set apart from the rest. The ark. Moses approaches chills prickling his skin. Did you craft it yourself, Bezalel? A nod. Sunlight glints off a chest, not quite four feet long, and overlaid in pure gold, inside and out. Atop it, a cover made of gold, flanked by two beautifully crafted cherubim facing one another, one on each end, their wings outspread. This place here Moses gestures to the space between the cherubim just above the ark. This will be his throne. Will he dwell here with us? Someone dares to ask, perhaps. If Moses answers, he does so with a smile, visible even through his veil. And he speaks words truer than he can understand. He will. He will make his dwelling among us. A new day. Drops of sweat fall from Moses' faintly luminous forehead as he leans, finally, on his staff. Look at it. The tent, its courtyard, and all of the interior and exterior furnishings. It's taken days and the help of willing partners, but the tabernacle now stands assembled. Complete. Joshua beams. Miriam sheds a tear, perhaps. 
Wave after wave of Israelites come and see, marveling at the product of Yahweh's instruction and their cooperation. An 11,000-square-foot courtyard bounded by fabric panels that surround a rectangular structure, a timber-framed tent, technically, but this is so much more. Finely embroidered linen, bronze and silver and gold, masterfully crafted wood and metalwork, a symphony of textures, an oasis of symmetry and order in the midst of the chaos of this desolate place. Straight lines against the clash of craggy cliffs, purple and scarlet splashed against the ochre landscape. Structure and harmony rising out of shifting sands. Moses smiles. It's him. And it could, it could be us. If a child tugs on Moses' tunic and asks about the rings built into the corners of the altar or the poles that slide through them, he explains, his arm sweeping toward the tabernacle, this is to go with us wherever Yahweh leads. A smile. He is to go with us. Next, Moses steps toward the new tent of meeting with a bowl in his hands. He murmurs prayers, surely, as he tips fragrant oil from the vessel and anoints everything they've made. The frame, the lampstand, the table, the Ark of the Covenant holding the two stone tablets, the altar. The anointing oil, imbued with meaning and power by the Spirit of God, marks the tabernacle as a doorway between earth and heaven. Moses turns then to his brother, dressed in the newly minted priestly garments. The hairs on Aaron's neck stand on end as Moses raises the bowl and anoints the first high priest of Israel. Precious oil runs down Aaron's beard and onto the collar of his robe. You are a doorway as well. And so Moses finishes the work. Then the children of Israel watch in awe as the white mass atop Mount Sinai clears and the air above the tabernacle begins to change. First a haze, then a mist, then a fully formed cloud towering in luminous ivory above the tent. The giant mass of Hebrews stands silent, every eye fixed now as the cloud descends and the glory of Yahweh fills the tabernacle. And the most remarkable thing in this remarkable moment, the tabernacle, full of Yahweh's radiance, is not positioned barely within sight of the people. It stands in the very center of the camp. Behind his veil, Moses beams. And also, surely, Moses weeps. He looks at the curtain marking the holy place, fluttering with the milky presence of Yahweh, and the old man knows he will never be allowed to enter. Soon, Israel will leave this place. They will strike out toward the Promised Land, tabernacle in tow, the ever-present cloud leading the way. 
it will take them longer to arrive than is necessary. But Yahweh will not give up on them. It's not hard to imagine Moses on a walk with Joshua before they go, the two men strolling through the sprawling Israelite camp as the sun dips toward the mountains in the west. A shadow falls on the blackened place left by the bonfire weeks before. Look at our people, Joshua. They have left Pharaoh's mud pits, but Egypt is still in their hearts. They are afraid to believe how good their new king really is. I understand it, but it brings me great sorrow. Maybe this will help. Joshua nods to the tabernacle. He cannot stop staring at it, at the swirling cloud hovering before the curtain. Yes, says Moses. The old man stops walking and gently pulls the veil from his face. Joshua turns toward him just as Moses' cheeks and forehead and eyes, glowing ever so faintly, return to their normal cast. Well, Moses says with a sad smile. He folds the veil. No need for this anymore. Moses, Joshua ventures, why can you not enter the tabernacle? After the calf, when Yahweh offered to start over with Moses, Moses declined. He called Yahweh instead to honor his long-standing promise to Israel. Yahweh obliged, but committing to these rebellious people meant his presence among them would have to be strictly regulated. Only the high priest would be allowed to enter the most holy place where Yahweh sat enthroned between the cherubim, and that only once a year. This is how the tabernacle would work, the high priest entering on behalf of the people, on behalf of Moses. No more trips up the mountain for the old shepherd, no more conferences in his own tent of meeting, no more shining face. It was a trade, a sacrifice. Moses would have less of Yahweh so that his people could have more of Yahweh. The old man's eyes get a faraway look. He's running through the gleaming halls of Pharaoh's palace, courtiers scurrying out of the way as he moves toward his mother, clutching a piece of wood. I've carved Horus, mother. Look! He's laughing with Jethro outside his home in the heights of Midian, raising a glass toward their newly shorn flocks, a warm fire and thick blankets, and a smiling wife awaiting him inside. He's standing in the cleft of the rock, mouth agape, legs trembling as he squints into the shining glory passing by. Moses blinks. Chalky tents align themselves and rose as his eyes regain their focus. A child, perhaps, is tugging on his tunic. Moshe, my sister took my bread. My friend says you are bound to give me counsel. A smile. I am at your service, my boy. One day the scriptures, new scriptures, will tell of one who did not consider his position a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and walking amongst the Israelites. Amazing, 
the prices love is willing to pay. Leaving palaces, giving up comfort, descending from heaven to earth. But nothing is lost forever. Not with him. Decades from now, Israel will finally enter Canaan, the land promised by Yahweh. Milk and honey, rivers and fields, quite a change from the sandy wilderness they wandered in for so long. But Moses, famously, will die just before they go in. The Israelites' mountaineering shepherd will be buried in a valley so close to the place he enabled them to reach. They'll cry for 30 days and march toward Jericho. But then, more than a thousand years later, Moses will suddenly awaken to find himself standing on a mountain, the air boiling around him, a blinding radiance. Goosebumps will flood Moses' bronzed skin, the linen of his robe rippling like troubled water. Moses' eyes will flash with light as there before him stands the Christ, the Anointed One, the doorway between heaven and earth. He'll see another mountaineering prophet standing with them, Elijah his name is. Together, the three of them will talk, and then a luminous cloud will rest on them, dewdrops on Moses' eyelashes, and a voice, that voice, will pierce the air. Surely a tear will fall across Moses' cheek, and perhaps another when he realizes the mountain he's on with Yahweh is in Canaan. Nothing lost forever. Not with him. Justin here. Thanks so much for listening to the final episode in this 10-part telling of the extraordinary story of the Exodus. It's been an absolute joy to share this story with you, and it's only been possible because so many of you have given generously to fund this season's production. To every one of you who gave or prayed, thank you. By God's grace, I think we created something truly powerful together. As I said before this episode began, I'm thrilled to let you know about something that's going to help you take this season of Holy Ghost Stories and go deeper by leading you into a 10-week experience with Yahweh in the stories from these 10 episodes. It's a beautiful, thoughtfully crafted resource called Bonfire, a guide to encountering God in the Exodus, written by me and my wife, author J.L. Gerhardt. We have created this for you as an official companion to this season of the podcast, and it's perfect for individuals or for groups. In each chapter, we'll share a personal essay with you, lead you through exercises in meditating on the story. Uh, you'll interact with the biblical text, reflect with some thoughtful questions, respond in prayer through a handful of prompts. It's a different thing each day for five days each week following the 10 episodes of this season. So if you're in a small group or if you teach a class or lead a study, or if you're looking for something to 
give structure to your own personal quiet time, I'm confident Bonfire will bless you. It's almost 300 pages of content with lots of space for jotting down your thoughts and responses, and it's beautifully laid out. There are tidbits along the way, too, with interesting details you might have missed in the podcast, all kinds of pull-out quotes from the episode scripts, and snippets of text to meditate on. I'm telling you, we have worked very hard to make this an invaluable resource for you. And the best part, Bonfire launches today. That's right. It's available right now on Amazon. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go to holyghoststories.org, or just head over to Amazon and search Bonfire Exodus. Now that you've finished this Exodus series, you might find yourself wanting to spend some more time with the God of the Exodus. He certainly wants to spend some time with you. And so I'm praying that Bonfire becomes your tent of meeting for a while. Grab a copy or two today. All right, well, that's a wrap for season four. During the next couple of months, I'll be hard at work on season five. I'll be sharing about that over on Patreon as plans take shape, letting those of you who are patrons choose which stories we will tackle next. Uh, Thanks for taking this journey through the Exodus with me. And thanks in advance for your support while I prepare season five. I'm always concerned that maybe patrons will drop off while I'm working behind the scenes, but you guys don't do that, and I'm grateful. This final episode of The Exodus was made possible by the extraordinary generosity of the Mariah Foundation. To those at the Mariah Foundation who wanted to enable a fresh telling of The Exodus story, we all say thank you so very much. And a big season four finale shout out to the Tours, the leaders of the generous tribe of patrons who make it possible for me to make this show for you. Joshua, Hildy, David, John and Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Travis, Steve, Daniel, Shannon, Kara, Dawn, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Stephanie, Cheyenne, Helen, Debbie, Scott and Susan, Elizabeth, Rick, Derek, Jeff, Maddie, Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa Sloan, and Jamie, you guys are a bridge. Thank you. Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios. Our composer is Kendall Ramsour. Our sound engineer is Joel Dolly. Manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt. Research, writing, narration, and direction by me, Justin Gerhardt. Till next time. 